You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. All right, welcome back everybody online and in the room. We're in the middle of a series, as you can see, in the Gospel of Luke. And we today come to chapter six. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And that's the reading of God's word all his people today said. Amen, amen. amen. Yes. All right, to get going, let's play a little multiple choice word association game, shall we? How about this? When I say the words, four seasons, what comes to mind? I I said multiple choice. Thank you. I'm going to give you options here. You're a very sharp and intuitive uh, crowd today, I can tell. uh, What comes to mind? A, is it something that Texas doesn't have? B, the story of your favorite team's glory years. Like those are four great seasons. Back in the 90s, some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay, all right. Or is it C? Yes, the luxury hotel. Of course, I'm talking about the hotel. When someone says four seasons, you usually think luxury. How about this one? When I say Nordstrom, what comes to mind? Would it be A, that weird astrologist in grocery store magazines like Nordstrom Damas? You know, that guy who's... I'll be here all week. All right. Uh, How about this? Is it B, an Arctic wind, like cover-up kids, you know, the the Nordstrom gale is blowing through. Or is it C, great customer service? Yeah, usually C, great customer service. The third one, a little more. How about what if I said Ikea? What comes to mind? Would it be perhaps a lesser-known Hawaiian island? Like they got Kona and Maui going to Ikea this year? Would it be B, deep frustration? <laughs> that would be me. Or C, inexpensive furniture. All right, yeah, it's usually C, inexpensive furniture. Now, those are a few great brands where something specific comes to mind when the word or the name is mentioned. Now, what about if I said church? Church. I'll bet if I put you today in groups of 10 all over the room, wherever you are today, I bet I'd get five, 10, 100, perhaps different definitions. And some of those might be good, some of those might not be. Some of you might say, well, the church is the place where where I got saved, it saved my life in a way, yeah. You might say the church is where I was taught how to love God and love others. But for some of you, it might be 
a little different based on your experience, based on your starting point. Some of you might say, well, I actually think the church is the place where people just go to pat themselves on the back. Some of you might say, I think the church is the place where tribal political tendencies just get reinforced. Or some of you, like 20th century novelist, a guy named Peter DeVries wrote, he wrote in a book critiquing religion, sort of poking fun at it, called Comfort Me With Apples. He might be saying the words he put into the mouth of one of his characters about Christians and church. This guy was walking past a church one day in a book, and he said, there but for the grace of God go I. As in, thank God I'm not a part of that. Now, on one hand, that's not really fair. You know, it's super easy to, to pick on churches, pick on religious gatherings, after all, we know sometimes, yes, bad Christians happen to good people, all right? But on the other hand, I still think it's worth asking the question, if the church, Jesus had a brand, what would it be? Not anything anybody sells, we're not selling stuff, but what my point is, what I'm trying to say is, what comes to the minds of others when that word is mentioned? What ought to come to mind in the minds of others? Well, I, I think... In his own way, Jesus of Nazareth is giving an answer to that kind of a question here in Luke 6. Because in a way, we're going to see it today, if there were a brand, if there were a phrase that described who we're called to be together, I think we could look at Luke 6, look at Jesus' words, and put these two words together right here. We could be, should be described as this, something that's upside down. Upside down. This is a theme in the Gospel of Luke, or about the yeah, upside down. Luke 6, let's look at it now here. It shows us that the church of Jesus is supposed to be come across to the world as an upside down place, an upside down group, not necessarily what people would expect. It's called to be an inverted, reversed, unexpected group of people with counterintuitive values, practices, and beliefs. Who are we supposed to be in the world? How should people encounter us? Three things from this passage, three ways. We're called to be an upside down people with upside down practices sustained by an upside down story. Upside down people with upside down practices sustained by an upside down story. Let's start here, number one, and look at what it means to be an upside down people. What does it mean? Well, part of what it means is just simply to understand right off the bat, what Jesus is doing here in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Here in Luke 6, after a night of intense prayer, Jesus goes up on a mountainside, calls his followers to himself, then he goes down and he gives the people the word of God. Well, hang on a minute. When was the last time something like that happened? Oh yeah, all the way back in the book of Exodus, the founder of the Jewish nation, Moses did the same thing. Moses climbed a mountain. The people gathered around it. Moses came down with commandments and Moses gave those commandments to the people. Now let's ask the million dollar question. Why? Why? Why did God through Moses give the people the commandments? Was it to save them, free them, liberate them? No, God had already saved them. They were already free. They had already been liberated. Then why the commandments? Well, God didn't give the commandments to save the people. No, God gave the commandments to form the people. To form the people. Not to free them. They're already free. But to create a new 
human community in the world. It's God's way of saying the rest of the nations may be living like that. The rest of the world may think stuff like that, act like that, but not so my people. And Jesus Christ, in the same way here, is what theologians call the the Deutero-Moses, a fancy way of saying he's doing again what Moses did. All right. Not showing his followers how to be saved, but how to live together, how to be that light in the world, like a city set on a hill right here. King Jesus, in Luke 6, is drawing a distinction, line in the sand between his way, his values, and Caesar's kingdom. The values of the kingdom of God versus the values of the kingdom of man. Now look what he says here. Not to individuals isolated, but to a people. Looking at his, who does it say? Come on. Looking at his who? Disciples. A group of people. He says, blessed are you all who are poor. Blessed are you all who hunger now. And blessed uh, for for you all as a group, you'll be satisfied. Blessed are all (laughs) y'all who weep now for you all will laugh. Blessed are the group of you when the people hate the group of you. When they exclude you, am I making my point here? And insult you, reject your name, all your names as evil because of the son of man. Jesus is outlining here four values of the kingdom of man, human kingdoms, and inverting them. I'll name them here. Power, comfort, success, and recognition. He says, blessed are you if you're poor and therefore without power, because what is power if not a function hmm, of wealth? Second, blessed are you, he says, if you're hungry now, if you don't experience the kind of comfort the world says that you need. Blessed are you who, he says, who weep now for you will Laugh, this word in Greek, laugh means to relish in victory. As in our English phrase, he who laughs last, laughs best. Some of you know that. No, nobody knows this here. Okay, first service, folk, no, maybe, all right. Laughs best. Yeah, you learned something today. There you go. This is a way of acknowledging there's a kind of a laugh that only a victor makes. And Jesus says, if you're not laughing like victors do, winners do, superstars do, if you don't have the kind of success the world says you need, that's okay. You're blessed if you weep instead. Blessed are you, he says, if you don't get the recognition that you perhaps really do deserve because you chose to follow me. Because you chose to follow me. You could have had more. Instead, you got less. And for that, you're blessed. Now, in that last 60 seconds, some of you went, ew. Because I just described a kind of life here, as a lot of folks have said, it's masochistic at best, impossible at worst. At the very least, it doesn't sound super American, right? Because we don't make TV shows called Lifestyles of the Poor and Barely Known. No, right? The down and out and anonymous. <laughs> we, don't, you know, we make lifestyles of the rich and famous. Now, this is, I mean, this is not saying that you shouldn't dream big. Yeah. Not at all. This is not saying don't win the championship. This is not saying you should be miserable and unhappy your whole life and call it godly. No, no, no. This is saying that those values, the values of power, comfort, success, recognition, are not what should drive the church of Jesus together in the world. The values of this world, comfort, power, success, recognition, are not supposed to be identity markers when you walk in here, givers of status when you walk in here, gateways to glory for your own personal platform. That's not what this is about. See, in a way then, Jesus Christ flips the whole idea of branding on its head. He's saying, all right, y'all want a brand as a church? Here it is. 
take everything, the kingdom of man, everything that Caesar prizes, and flip it. Turn it upside down. Reverse it. Invert it. The way down is up. The way up is down. The narrow way is actually the way that leads to life. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. I can go on. It's disorienting, is it not? It's confusing. Yes, it feels like a reversal of so much of what we've been taught culturally because it is. And by the way, if you want to know, if you want to know why the early Christian church turned the world upside down, it's because they lived in an upside down way. Over in Acts 17, just a few years after the life of Jesus, it was said of them by the Greco-Roman world, here's a group of people who are turning the world upside down. They didn't seek power, comfort, recognition, success. Is this what we would say the church of Jesus is known for now? Is this us? Now, it can be. I believe it can be. And let me show you how we can get there if and when we're not. We're called to be an upside down people, number two, who have upside down practices. Okay. Now for sure on one hand, what you're about to hear is super insider sounding stuff. Super churchy stuff, okay? Like if you're new, at first you may be thinking, man, he mentions these. It sounds super churchy, super insider language. I kind of want to check out. Don't do it. If you're 15, 55, 1,005, God bless you. You broke Methuselah's record. Okay, you're here in our church. Awesome. Glad to meet you. If you pay attention to nothing else today, pay attention to these, especially if you're new, especially if you're an outsider at first, because you're going to get a great look at some things I hope, I hope, define who we are becoming as a people. Let's look at three now, upside down practices and what each of them represent in our community, in the world. First, there's water baptism represents the end of bitterness. I'll try to show you how. We talked a lot about this today. Uh, Jeffrey Wainwright it was a theologian, professor at Duke Divinity School. He wrote an influential book called Doxology, and he tells this story. He tells a story about an Armenian Christian woman who did something remarkable. You may know that the Armenians are a group of people who have been persecuted for centuries, particularly by the Turkish people, who massacred roughly 1.5 million Armenians between 1915 and 1922. It was called the Armenian Holocaust, predated the Jewish Holocaust, and a movie all about it is called The Promise, and it was made a few years ago with everybody's Court of favorite heartthrobs there, uh, Oscar Isaac, Christian Bale. And the Turkish government fought its release because it told the true story of Armenian Christians being crucified, raped, death marched through the desert, and medically experimented on. And in his book, Wainwright tells the true story of a Turkish officer who raided and looted an Armenian Christian home. The officer came and killed the elderly parents gave the daughters to his soldiers and kept the oldest daughter for himself. She managed to later escape. She got trained as a nurse and she ended up nursing in a ward where, just so happened, that filled up one time with Turkish officers. They see where this is going. And one night she saw the face of the officer who had killed her parents and enslaved her, used her. He was in such bad shape that if he did not receive exceptional medical care from her, he would die. But she did it. She nursed him. 
He recovered. And one day, one day, the doctor in charge of the whole ward went to that officer's bed, took a nurse with him, looked at him, pointed at her, and said back to the officer, but for her devotion to you, you'd be dead. Here's how the story went. The officer looked at her and said, we have met before, haven't we? Yeah. Yes, she said, we've met before. Why didn't you kill me? He asked. She replied, she quotes Luke 6 here. I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies. Now, when you think about water baptism, what does the apostle Paul tell us we're doing over in Romans chapter six? He says, we're being baptized. That means identified with clothed with something specific. Chapter six, verse three, he says, don't you know, as in you all should know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Come on, what's the word? Say it. Death. He says, you're clothed, submerged to the kind of a death. Well, what kind of a death did Jesus Christ die? Come on, on the cross, as he hung dying, what did he say? Father, curse them because they voted for the wrong party. Oh, wait. No, he didn't say, didn't actually say that, did he? Father, no, he said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. With this death, what did Jesus Christ accomplish? It was the forgiveness of our sins. And then over in Acts chapter two, Peter, he, the Pentecost says, be water baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. To be a baptismal Christian, to be a baptismal church sin, is not to be a people who just get covered in water, but it's to be a people, can you see, who are plunged into a central act that unleashes forgiveness in our world. See, a baptismal people like that Arminian nurse forego bitterness and unleash forgiveness. Are we a baptismal people? I would hope so today. Second practice of the upside down church is communion, the Lord's table. Some call it the Eucharist, which means represents really the end of classism. Now, some of you, depending on your background, you may have grown up scared to take communion. Like you're afraid of it because communion, if you don't know, is a moment where typically uh, the bread, uh, bread and juice are served representing the body and blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us on the cross. So you think, well, why would anybody be scared of some bread and juice? Well, there's this particular passage over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul says, examine yourselves when you take it. And if you take it wrongly, you're judged by Jesus Christ himself. Now, some of you, you got nervous about this. I know this because you've told me this. Like, maybe you grew up in a church. You heard this. Like, you got super nervous when you, you got beat up with this passage. And when you heard this, examine yourself. You started looking inside real deep. Like, did I lie this morning? You know, like, you know, did I yell at my kids this morning? Did I lie about yelling at my kids this morning? You know? You know, or then you think, have my kids examined themselves? Oh no, you can kind of see moms and dads everywhere swatting communion out of their kids' hands like, Johnny, stop, don't take the poison, Jesus. It'll hurt you. You know, like Susie gets a cold. Honey, dad, did you, were you the one who let her take that? How could you? You know, no, that's not what communion is or what this passage is all about. When Paul writes, to these Corinthian Christians. Yeah, he critiques them about how they do communion, but why? Look at chapter 11, verse 18. He said, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. 
But he's, he's not saying here, no, the, the, the Greek Smith family is mad at the Roman Jones family. Because the Roman Jones family cut off the Greek Smith family in the parking lot. Or the Smith family took the Roman Jones' seats in church like it was my special place. How could you? you know? No. No, Paul goes on to say, you've got divisions. And you can see this because, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you all are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. Listen, the Greco-Roman world was deeply stratified by class. The rich people gathered together and they did not mix with the poor because how could the poor help the rich get ahead in life? The rich threw parties, had private suppers where they invited their friends, their rich friends, to help them network and leverage their wealth for greater opportunity. And when the first churches met, they didn't meet in larger rooms like this. They met in people's homes with smaller rooms. And guess what happened when, they, when it came time for the Lord's Supper, when it came time for communion? They brought in their cultural baggage and seated themselves in different rooms. Some had private dinners with the rich, overate the bread, overdrank the wine, while others, the poor, got little to none. And Paul said, at this point, when you do this, you may be eaten at some kind of table, but it is not the Lord's table that you're eating at. It, uh, the Lord's table you are taking our Lord offered his one body for all people, and our Lord shed his one blood for all people at one table. And when you separate out Christians by class, when you disallow your poor brothers and sisters from the table of Christ, you are guilty of taking it in an unworthy way, in a way Jesus Christ never, ever meant. So yeah, examine yourselves. Don't look inside as a group, as an individual that is. Look outside as a group, as a church before you receive it. Is your church guilty of favoring one class of people? If you are, he said, yeah, you're judged by God. But please know, he says, it's actually a good thing so that we, verse 32, will not be finally condemned with the world. Because what is the world value? Come on, what are the values of the world? Power, success, comfort, recognition. Those values are passing away. They're not a part of an upside down people. And therefore, Paul concludes like this. Verse 33, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, the Lord's table, you should all eat. What's the word? Together. Communion means the end of classism. Are we a Eucharistic people, a communion people, a people of the Lord's table? Third practice of the upside down church and kingdom. We'll call discipleship, being like Christ. We'll call it the end of racism, and here's why. Shortly after World War II, something called apartheid came into being in South Africa. Some of you may know the word means separation. And it was a way that the white Dutch colonizers, called the Afrikaners, discriminated against the black and colored peoples of their nation. And one Afrikaner judge, a Christian, True story here. Went to a black church service one Sunday morning at the urge request of a black pastor to show that not all whites had turned against him. Uh, simply by doing this, this judge risked his career, but he did it anyway. But then he got there, and the pastor asked a further favor of him. He asked him, would you join us in a foot-washing ceremony after the service? Foot-washing is something, something based on a menial task Jesus did for his followers, at his last supper. So he said yes, and lo and behold, the feet presented to him to wash that day were the feet 
of a woman who had served in his own home for 30 years. The people in church gasped as Judge Jan Olivier knelt before his servant named Martha Fortwin. Here's the eyewitness account. He said, then he took both her feet in his hands with gentleness, for they were no doubt tired with much serving, and he kissed them both. Then Martha, Martha Fortwin and many others in the holy church of Zion fell a-weeping. Local newspapers heard about this. They ran the story, and the judge lost his job. Why? He insisted, because of Jesus Christ, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, be like Jesus Christ. No ethnicity is above another, and he acted on it, and it cost him his career. But didn't Jesus say, blessed are you, and people hate you, exclude you, and insult you, reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man? Jesus said this, no servant is above his master, meaning if they treated me like this, you're following me, you can expect to be treated the same. In church, if we want to be disciples, follow, look like the one who loved the Roman centurion, Syrophoenician woman, Samaritan woman at the well. The writers point these things out to you to let you know they're ethnically different than Jesus. We follow the one who insists that we are one and we act on it. We just might be treated like that. Are we a discipled people? Do we seek the welfare of those unlike us? This upside down kingdom, the way up is down, down is up. The in are out, the out are in. You find your life by losing it. Where do we get the power to sustain this way of living? What can help us in the end be a baptized people, Eucharistic people, a discipled people? In the end, number three, we need an upside down story to sustain us. What is that? What is that? As a people of God, what's our story? Rather, what's our storyline? What's the storyline of the kingdom of God? How does it go? Let me try to trace it for you from the beginning. First, our storyline, we'll put it like this, is about the boys nobody chose. In the ancient world, Jesus' day still, there was one main rule when it came to boys. The oldest was worth twice as much as the rest. It was called primogeniture. It gave the oldest son nearly all the estate and wealth. In that day, the oldest was in, the rest were out. But you can read in our storyline, in every generation, God's working to overturn this value of the kingdom of man. It's always the younger Abel over the older Cain, the younger Isaac over Ishmael, the younger Jacob over Esau, the younger Moses over Aaron, and the younger David over all the rest of them. But they weren't just the younger brothers. They all had a flaw, a major flaw sometimes. Sometimes they weren't just not chosen by their culture. Sometimes they weren't even wanted by their own families. But God wanted them. God chose them. God used him. Our story line is about the boys nobody chose. It's also about the women nobody wanted. Because the rule for women in that day was this. Their only value was in their fertility and their beauty. I mean, aren't you glad things have changed? 
want to tell you, God is in a different business than just a beauty business. God worked through the older Sarah rather than the younger Hagar to save the world. God worked through the plain-looking Leah rather than the beauty queen pageant winner Rachel. God worked through Hannah, a barren woman. God worked through Tamar, the outcast, Rahab, a prostitute, and Bathsheba, the victim of the king's power. They were all women on the outside. Oh, but God brought them to the center of his storyline. Our storyline is about the people everyone despised. The Jewish people were continually hated throughout the centuries, enslaved by Egypt, almost wiped out later by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and yet the Messiah came through them, through God's providential preservation of a tiny, despised people group in the world. God used them. Our storyline is about the plot nobody wants to be in. Come on, think about Joseph, right? I mean, Joseph saved the world. How? Sold to slavery, put in prison, yet it was only through his hardship he achieved greatness. Think about Ruth, a vulnerable immigrant who went out into the field, the grain fields to gather to provide for her aging mother-in-law. But because she does this, because she risked even her physical, physical life and self, God chooses her to become the grandmother, the great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Think about Esther. She saves her people. Why? Because she risks her life and her position. Think about David squaring off against Iron Man. In the desert, Goliath, he's an Iron Age superhero, armed to the teeth. But David's basically a, a kid in a bathrobe, wearing some slippers. He's got a rubber band, tossing marbles. And yet precisely because he looks so small, Goliath drops his defenses and David wins the battle. And the writer later of the book of Hebrews, New Testament, looks back on all of that, all of that storyline, and it says this of them. Their weakness was turned to strength. This is the plot line, though, nobody wants. I don't want to be in a weak position, outnumbered, outgunned, outclassed, right? No, no, no. But weakness turned to strength. All of this, though, leads us to this final plot point. It leads to the gospel nobody wants to hear. And here's what I mean. Because the gospel is not because you are so amazing. God saved you, you self-actualized person of utter agency who has beaten back the haters in their quest to reclaim their full self. Nor is the gospel, well, you might not be amazing now, but if you work real hard and you pull yourself together and you clean up your act, you self-improvement guru, you save you. No, gospel is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Not like them. Like me. See, to come to him, you come in weakness. You acknowledge you can't save yourself. You need a savior, Jesus of Nazareth. Live, dead, seen alive again by countless eyewitnesses. His upside down weakness in death turned to strength in the resurrection is what has launched this thing we call the church. And as a people, I want to tell you, we are never stronger than when we live like that. We release his power in the world when we live in that way by those values and trust him to turn our weakness to strength. And when you today, yeah, as an individual, when you trust him, you receive him, here's what you can say now. When you come to him, full of humility in an upside down way. Now, when you trust him, you can say this. I may be 
the boy nobody chose. I may be the woman nobody wanted. I may be part of a despised people, live in a plot line nobody wants to live. That's okay, because I've chosen to follow Jesus, a crucified and risen Messiah who promises me all my weaknesses will be turned to strength, and he proved that claim with his own life. See, he becomes something we long to hear in the end because it tells us what is truly true about us. We all long to be loved apart from our performance. We all love to be, uh, long to be loved for who we really are. We all long to be embraced by a heavenly father who calls us his own. We want to know that true love lasts and joy goes on for forever. And we get to taste it most often when we come together as a baptized, communion-taking, discipled people and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ together. Friends, that's the brand I think I'd like to be known by. All right. Maybe you today can enter into that storyline with a whole bunch of other folks as well. Let me pray for you. Father, we come in Jesus' name. We thank you for these truths. Help us to live by them, be known by them. Let them shape our lives. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.